1: Welcome back to the show. Today we have Maya Middleness. She's the CEO of BlockSparks. Maya, welcome to the show.
2: It's great to be here, Kevin. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to have
1: you on the show. You guys are doing some really interesting stuff kind of around blockchain and and some other stuff that we'll talk about um, later. But maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up.
2: Oh, okay. That's going back a long way. I'm from London, really. Um, <laughs> Very cool. So I grew up there, but I've been living in Eastern Spain for the last 10 years because I, because I could, really. Um, and we just moved out of London in search of a different lifestyle and kept going. Um, I had the kind of work that I could take with me, which is incredibly fortunate and is now becoming more and more common.
1: Interesting. No, that, I think that's great. And like, actually, I was in Spain earlier in the year um, in Madrid. It's beautiful. First time there. I, I loved it. I thought it was, it was great. So
2: I, I get why you moved there. <laughs> yeah, it's a great culture, really, for family life. Um, yeah, we, we love it here. And I'm sure it'll be a long term move, though. Um, maybe one day we'll try somewhere else. Who knows?
1: Interesting. So you went to university. What did you take and why?
2: Uh, oh, okay. Now this is going back into the dim and distant.
1: I, I love it. I love it. <laughs>
2: um, interestingly, I very nearly did a physics degree, which would have been a terrible okay. mistake. I,
1: what What made you want to take physics originally? Uh,
2: well, I'm not sure that I ever especially wanted to. I think I was a product of, and I don't know whether this was a spe- specifically a UK thing, but certainly okay. in the 80s and single-sex education, there was very much a push for girls do science um you know mm-hmm, going sure. to hard sciences which i'd broadly agreed with in principle but i think the way that things are assessed academically if you're broadly good at a lot of stuff but you, you tend to get the highest marks in the things that are objectively right or wrong so it was yes obviously you should do maths and physics and things and i'm i'm sure i knew something wasn't right because i managed to spectacularly mess up my final exams and didn't go down that path that had been set out for me. And then okay, I went traveling and did other things instead for a while and ended up going back and doing a psychology degree in my mid-twenties, which was actually far more interesting, I think.
1: Okay. What what made you want to take psychology
2: then? Um, I think it was just more of a general curiosity about life and not being quite sure what I wanted to do at the end of it, but finally sure. being ready to go onto that stage of my life and explore higher education. And I certainly didn't want to go back and do a science degree. Instead, I enjoyed, we were actually shared a department with the science people. So we just did experiments on them to see how stressed they were instead.
1: Interesting. Okay. That must've been quite fascinating actually.
2: Yeah. It's funny actually looking back now, um, you know, whenever I look at anything from current psychological literature, how different the study approach is and how much has changed, how much more data we have, um, you know, back in the day we were doing, trying to infer things about how the mind worked and how decisions were made and so on. And now you look at modern experiments in the same areas and they're just saying, oh, well, we just pop them in an MRI and this bit of the brain lit up. And sciences that were quite soft and social have now become far more data driven and scientific and harder and objective. And, but hopefully coming out with similar conclusions, similar conclusions that actually sometimes people came up with hundreds of years ago, but proves that human nature hasn't changed that much
1: interesting yeah it's quite fascinating hey mm. so you actually you got a you you also went to university and it took some business what what did you take there and what made you do that as well
2: well um i say i did psychology because i was generally interested in people and life but i didn't sure. really know what i wanted to do and i I worked around, I did a lot of voluntary sector and community development type work, which was sort of, you know, save the world type work, which was interesting. Then I ended up working in market research for a while. And I studied part time to get a, a business diploma just because it was a useful way to extend what I was doing and learning. But again, without any very clear goal in sight. I mean, by then I'd realized I was never going to be a physicist, um,
1: Okay, sure. I was
2: fine. (laughs) In fact, I remember joking about it once with somebody. It was actually my mother, who was a writer, and finally pushed me down this road career-wise a few years ago, and saying, "I wish we'd picked that up when you were in school, but now you make a lot more money splitting infinitives than splitting atoms," and that was was good.
1: Interesting. So walk me through your career, maybe some career highlights along the way up until kind of what you're doing now.
2: Sure. Well, I spent um, a long time working in market research field work, which was very interesting. Okay. Um, and it also gave me the opportunity to work flexibly from home when I had a young family and then to, decide you. to move my home to another country and things like that. But I was becoming more and more interested in the storytelling and content creation around that and the marketing of the business. And drifting more and more. Um, We didn't call it content strategy then because it didn't really show the word, but it was telling the stories about what we were doing and getting to new audiences in different ways. Um, Because I was then living in Spain, I wanted to put down some roots in the community where I was and so I ended up pitching a column to the local paper. And so for several years I wrote a, a column about technology and social media for the local English press. And
1: Interesting. drifted
2: sideways into more journalistic work that way. Um, and then eventually, after publishing a book about research field work, it was kind of felt that that bit of my life was done. And then I went full-time freelance writing for a while. And I loved freelancing. Okay. It was great. I loved the, f- the freedom of it and the flexibility. Um, and I loved writing about all sorts of things. And I thought it'll be great to just be able to write about whatever I want, like travel and things like that. But then... In terms of paying the bills, I realized that my best intersection of interest and skills lay in technology, um, fintech in particular, and there were some really interesting interesting gigs coming that way that I was winning. And then I came across one about um, a blockchain cryptocurrency project a year or so ago. I okay. didn't know much about at the time. Uh, it was actually about one of the big scandal Ponzi scheme things. We don't talk about that anymore. <laughs> um, but it was, a, sure. it was fascinating, though. I, sort of from a journalistic point of view, I was intrigued by why so many people had been suckered by this thing and dug into it further. It was clear what was wrong with it from a, a business and financial point of view, but why were so many people taken in? And then another... Um, crypto job came my way about something completely different and i just found that i was reading more and more about it and going further and further down this rabbit hole as a metaphor people very frequently use in this space that you just get sure. kind of sucked in like a big black hole into all this information fascination <laughs> and i just found out that i was was you know going way above and beyond the requirements of any particular freelance gig to find out more about this stuff because it was fascinating and then I ended up basically specializing by accident in writing about this stuff because it is quite interesting rich, and all the knowledge kind of accumulates and you find you can go and research something because you know where the information lies and who to talk to and I realized I'd re- really been writing about nothing else um, interesting and I, I, I was so, okay with that
1: no, I, I it's that's quite fascinating, actually. So for people that maybe don't know what exactly it is, how do you describe what kind of blockchain and all the stuff you write about is actually kind of about?
2: Right. Um, well, lots of people, probably like I was a year or so ago, were vaguely aware that Bitcoin was this kind of digital currency, that sort of sure. a physical manifestation, but um, it was all online, it was all digital, and probably had something to do with drug dealing or Um, terrorism, lots of unsavory associations. And really, I knew nothing about the blockchain technology that powered it, along with other technologies. But the fascinating Mm -hmm. thing about blockchain is, for me, I think it ties back to the original work I once did in community development, the kind of inclusiveness and transparency of it. And that's very unscientific, but there's something very quite noble about it, in a way, The, the way of making data accountable and tamper-evident, if not tamper-proof. And that means that you can send value from one side of the world to the other in a transaction because it's copied to... It's like a big database, really, with lots of copies. And there are lots of different metaphors and analogies people use to describe it. One is if you've ever edited something like a Google document document or a a Google Sheet, if you like, that lots of people are editing at the same time and you can actually see other people writing in it. But imagine if that was the Bitcoin... Protocol that would be say 900 nodes contributing to that simultaneously or 9,000. And each time somebody adds a row, it's there forever. And the next one goes in underneath it, and the next one goes in underneath it. But everybody can see it.
1: Interesting way to describe it. I, I think it makes total sense.
2: So there's this distributed ledger that is continually updated and pushed out around the world. And the power of that is sort of deceptively simple. Obviously, it's not just blockchain that that powers cryptocurrency. There's also some very advanced cryptography as well to make sure that those transactions end up in the right place. Um, and there's this whole kind of change coming in the economy and I realized that a lot of the projects I was being asked to write about they weren't really about Bitcoin or the ones that you've heard of they were about some very innovative projects going on in the space Um, okay there are some amazing things happening some of the brightest minds I've ever worked with yeah they're trying to solve some of the biggest problems in the world some amazingly intelligent people with some amazingly disruptive ideas and they are going to change the world the only problem is sometimes they're not very good at explaining to normal people how those ideas are going to change the world for them so that's where i feel that that my space in life lies is telling those stories um, being able to come in and translate from people whose first language might not be english or their first language might be code of some kind Um, but it's this vision and it's going to transform some very specific problem in life and then being able to tell that story and bring it out into the world. So that was where I found myself about six months ago.
1: Um, interesting. It was
2: slightly longer than that. This year is just whizzing. <laughs>
1: I know it's, <laughs> it's going to good back.
2: sign. I think, yeah. So. It was, it, it, I realized it, it's people interesting. wanted more. Uh, they, they didn't just, my specialism is long-form storytelling, you know, article okay. and press and so on. But I was finding clients that were working and seeking funding particularly needed a broader range of marketing communication. So that was when I decided I needed to bite the bullet and put together a team in order to do de- okay. it. Having loved freelancing and the the flexibility of that, it's actually... Great to be working with some fantastic people again and putting together a team of specialists in social media, in press, you know, actually getting things out to journalists and infiltrating traditional media bit by bit, slowly, um, and starting to tell the stories of these amazing startups and what they're doing.
1: Sure. And that's this is that's Block Sparks, right?
2: That's Block Sparks, yep.
1: No, interesting. Yeah, I, I think just to kind of echo what you said, as kind of somebody that's kind of been on the technical side of things, and I don't really consider myself a very good writer, um, it, sometimes it's really, really challenging because as a technical person, sometimes you either talk over people's heads or you, you talk kind of like down to them because you, you simplify it too much and trying to figure out with it, like especially if you meet somebody right, like you meet somebody for the first time, you have like almost like seconds to gauge kind of where you think their technical expertise is or isn't, and if you start kind of talking to them if you, if you misguess that,
2: in either you
1: can offend somebody so fast yeah. and like, you don't mean to, but it, it's interesting. Right? It is
2: uh, because I think the world is just becoming so niched and so mm-hmm. that there's so much knowledge in the world. I mean, I would love it. If, you know, if I'd lived two or 300 years ago and an educated person in the Renaissance would have been expected to be generally educated about everything. You know, you would have the whole world's knowledge about, poetry and languages and astronomy and everything if you were a reasonably sort of middle class travel probably a man um, whereas nowadays nobody can be like that nobody can know everything there is to know about everything we all have these little tiny narrower and narrower yeah. of interest and knowledge and just trying to connect those things up it's a great place to be operating but it has a lot of challenges and as you say you can misjudge it Um, And you've got to make these snap judgments about people. And I suppose we do it all the time, just in general conversation when you meet somebody. I mean, for me, it starts with, what is it you actually do? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's the same. I mean, my other half works in IT customer support and he has to make the same evaluations instantly when someone presents with a problem um, as to, you know, is this a high level user who's managed to find some obscure bug or is this somebody who hasn't plugged it in right? Uh, and, and to try and resolve that problem in a couple of questions at the very beginning of the conversation. So you're not giving completely wrong and potentially very patronizing or offensive advice.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's, yeah, I can't, I, I don't know if I could do that every day. Like, <laughs> <I couldn't. laughs> it's just not for me, but I, you know, like, I, I think that's, that's one of the hardest jobs to do because m- not everybody's, Happy with your, they're like with what's happening, right? When they reach out to support, oh, no, sometimes, sometimes they are not happy,
2: <laughs> and sometimes so, they don't frame questions well. Um, you know, yeah, good at asking for what they need and so on. No, I'm really lucky because I get to do this in writing slowly and in a considered way. Fair enough, and then edit it before anybody reads it. So yes, great respect to people who can do it live. So
1: I, I'm curious though to dive into some of the stuff that you've written about recently. Um, do you maybe want to kind of talk about some of the recent articles you've written and kind of
2: why you kind of wrote about them? Sure. Yes. I mean, I do a lot of blogging for clients, um, ways to kind of develop their platforms and what they're doing. We have some clients, I can talk about openly. Others were kind of kept secret Um, because there's a lot of very sensitive intellectual property around in this space, as you will appreciate. There's um, one client we've been working for for a while now who are now post ICO and they're about to launch a distributed cryptocurrency exchange. Um, Okay, interesting. That's a lovely project because they're values are very much aligned with my own personally they're very inclusive and accessible they're trying to create an on-ramp into crypto for people from all over the world there are lots of currencies where i think we take it for granted that if you've got us dollars or sterling or euros it's it's fairly easy to access this stuff as it is to access most financial services but if you've got a rather more obscure currency it's almost impossible to use the typical on-ramps that we find so they've created a peer-to-peer exchange where Anybody can connect with anybody, like a a sort of eBay of cryptocurrency dealings.
1: Interesting. They're
2: launching literally um, within the next week, so that'll be really exciting. But I get to write about all sorts of things for them, um, not just about their product. For example, I wrote something recently about how cryptocurrency can really impact financial inclusion globally. And all those things do take for granted in the developed world, like access to credit, access to sending payments and remittances. There's a fundamental lack of fairness in the whole thing, where the less you have to start with, the more expensive and difficult it is to access financial services. And so much of the world remains unbanked or underbanked. Even in developed countries, you know, there are large proportions of people who largely invisible in Europe and the U.S. who don't have access to those kind of services because of problems with credit or problems with yep. their address or their you know the lack of stability in their lives. And so crypto has the potential to change that and let people reestablish lines of credit, build reputation on other factors even established digital identities you know, for people who are displaced from where they were born. People may have lost touch with the the traditional infrastructure that we we take for granted till we lose it, I think, if we're privileged enough to be born in the first world and, and have access to all this stuff. So I think, obviously, I don't try to be naive about it. There are lots of interests who don't want to see the world disrupted to that extent, but I think there is for the first time in my lifetime that I can think of real potential to do things differently. So I love getting to write about stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it's actually quite fascinating, right? Because it almost levels the playing field a little bit, right? Like if not saying it it probably will never happen, but like if there was just like one global digital currency that was the kind of go-to, because like I think and people would probably argue this, but like for just pick the US dollar, for example. Mm. Most places on the planet, if you pull out a US dollar, they will take it.
2: Yeah.
1: I actually had an experience in when I was in Mexico a number of years ago where we were in a small town and they wouldn't take uh US currency, but that was like the you know, for, for just for, for argument's sake, but like if there was one currency that you could just use kind of everywhere. Globally, is actually really quite fascinating, right? It like is, isn't it? just it's the implications powerful. of that.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. That must have been quite a shock for you in Mexico to come across that, because it is so universal. If you get paid in US dollars, you thought that they might not be universally welcome, um, is something that you don't typically encounter or or have to consider in your day to day life at all. Whereas if you get paid in Venezuelan bolivars or Zimbabwe dollars. Yeah something like that, it's a part of your everyday life to think, is there, you know, how can I manage my way through this situation? You have to think about life completely differently. And it it is very hard for us all to understand. I suppose the only way to think about it is if, again, if we go back sort of a couple hundred years, I sound like some kind of renaissance professor. No, no, it's good. I like it. There there was a time when gold was the global reserve currency. And actually you could Mm -hmm. much travel and transact anywhere on the planet with gold. And knowledge trade traveled freely. Okay, travel quite slowly. You could send a digital transaction. <laughs> sure. You had to get on a boat somewhere with your your spices or whatever. But actually the whole world pretty much had a standard point of valuation. And nowadays the US dollar is regarded as the global reserve currency, but a great many people think that Bitcoin has the potential to become that. Um, as we we move further and further away from trusting fiat currencies which basically only have their value by decree of a government and state and as our trust in those institutions continues to decline um, more in some countries than others but globally on the whole then there could be some big changes ahead.
1: Yeah no it's it's quite fascinating to me. Um, The the one piece that we should maybe talk about that I found really quite fascinating is you have this uh, article that you wrote recently kind of it's up on LinkedIn and um, that, like, why would an honest person need a privacy coin in it? I, do you want to maybe kind of talk about what you cover in that piece and, and why you decided to write about that? Because I think it's quite fascinating, actually.
2: I think there are a lot of misconceptions about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that people think it's completely sure. anonymous. Um sure. and actually it isn't. And it, one thing I try to avoid actually having to pronounce the word pseudonymous on a podcast. Sorry, sorry. It's not really <laughs> anonymous. Um what pseudonymous means is that it can be reverse engineered and actually it's possible to with a little bit of forensic examination, you can quite often track exactly what those bits of code mean, or at least you can aggregate certain information about them. And I think in this big data world that we live in, it's easy to forget that actually there are, there are people, whether they're trying to get you to reveal your bank password or whatever, that, who are quite good at putting different bits of information together out of huge data sets and trying to socially engineer their way into your Facebook account or your your bank account or whatever so we think of bitcoin as anonymous it isn't and there are people you know that's how they were able to catch various um people who've distributed malware people who've tried to bribe people people who've held people to ransom there are People think Bitcoin is anonymous when it isn't. Um, The reason I think it's interesting is that privacy is so much in the public eye at the moment. I think we're having to really rethink privacy as a world in 2018 because of the way that data moves and travels and is bought and sold. Whether it's Zuckerberg appearing before the Senate and trying to explain how social media works to people from another century who are the ones making the rules about this stuff that affect us all, wherever we are in the world? Um, and, and then at the same time, you've got huge companies like Equifax just losing shed loads of data. Yeah. And all those people's details are compromised. And uh, There have been other huge breaches in the UK recently, where, like tens of millions of customer records lost. And the companies involved say, well, nobody's suffered any financial loss, so we don't have to pay any compensation or, or really do anything except apologize. And even under new legislation in Europe with GDPR, there really the fines amount to little more than a slap on the wrist for really big players. It doesn't seem to make them take people's data more seriously and more carefully. So I think privacy is something that we all have a natural right to. And it shouldn't be a case of well, if, you know, if, if you want privacy, it's because you're doing something bad or illegal or, or secret.
1: Yeah. I
2: think that's, that's the problem that, you know, it's, it's easy for regulators to turn around and say, well, you must have something to hide if privacy is a big deal to you. But actually, I think privacy should be the norm. It should be the natural state of yeah. where individuals, our thoughts are... You should have the choice. Yeah, we should. And there are lots of blockchain projects opening up that choice in fascinating ways. Um, There's one project we've been talking to recently who is aggregating a lot of scientific research into aging and longevity. And so they're looking at putting medical records on the blockchain, but then giving the people who those records are about complete sovereignty over them so they could decide, well, actually, I want to open up that record to this particular research project because what they're doing I believe in it or it might help me or it might help, you know, somebody I'll never meet to uh, if, if you have an unusual disease, for example, you're actually very rare and important from a data point of view and you should be sure. able to monetize that effectively rather yeah. than lots of research studies. Now you take part in it and effectively the drug company funding the study then owns that information. You don't, even though it's about yeah, health data. So I think there is, well, even- things- sorry, carry on.
1: No, I was just going to say, but even something as simple as the the fact of like, sure, you can use it to actually give that data away or parts of the data away to like research, but like you could also give it to other family members or caretakers or your doctor, but you could also give it to them for a limited period of time. Like yes. you can say, okay, like I'm in the hospital for two weeks, you know, let all the staff at the hospital and the doctors access my data and then three weeks from now they don't have access to it anymore right like you could potentially just like gatekeep your own data if you choose to
2: if you actually own that data then you can yeah control because in eight years on the other side of the world you're admitted to another hospital for something related then you should be able to Mm -hmm. say right you need the records from this period of my life yeah at the moment there's no way of doing that you know and even things like a record from your dentist, which might signify yeah. quite important about the state of your heart. For example, yeah. records are very rarely conjoined and it's, it's rec- information about you and you own it. But at the moment, it's in different people's databases. You have no control over it. You have no control over how it's used, whether it's used to make your life insurance more expensive and things like that. Sure. And it certainly doesn't benefit you in any way. I think um, recently there's there's been a bit of a revelation about how some of these genetic companies are using yeah, personal data. Yeah, interesting. They put these vast databases together. Yeah, I signed up for it. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I've got a mixed race family, and it's it's amazing to see sort of it's it's more mixed than I realized. It it's like wow, where did that bit come from? And, it's really interesting but i know i don't own that data you know i know that the company yeah behind it and monetizing it in various ways i hope some of it's doing some good on a scientific front but i'm sure a lot of it's just making lots of money for somebody i would love to be able to have that on a more blockchain permission basis and, and have more sure. say over it
1: or getting a kickback from it right? yeah
2: that might be nice <laughs> i haven't got anything real yeah. interesting i don't think it might,
1: it might well be. you never know though right like the the thing that i keep thinking about and obviously we're so far away from it but like if you had all the data since kind of the day you were born mm. about like everything right like personally professionally your medical history your dna everything right like and you could kind of decide how that was used almost like from your phone for example right yeah. like And you could just, okay, you need access to my dental records. Here's everything since the day I was born. Or here's my, like you said, medical history because I'm in a hospital in another country that I'm traveling to and like they can have access to everything like for that day. Or maybe it's just on your phone or something, right? Like having that, your data at kind of your fingertips is really quite fascinating to me. I know that scares some people, but I think like... I, I don't. I like that stuff, yeah. right? Like, I think that's kind of fascinating. It
2: requires a complete rethink, though, of, of what that data is, who owns sure. it, who has an interest in it. Um, and people don't see the value in it. There's a, a, an upmarket supermarket chain in the UK, and my mom okay. has the loyalty card for it. And the deal sure. is, with this loyalty card, you can have a free cup of coffee whenever you okay. go along and do a shop or spend over a certain amount. And she was blown okay. away by this. Oh, this is fantastic. You know, I can go and do my shopping. Then I just put the shopping in the car then I can go and have a free coffee. And we had a long conversation about how expensive <laughs> that coffee really is. <laughs> what that coffee is actually worth. You know, it, it, it's basically, it's a very self-selecting set because it's an expensive supermarket uh, of, Sure. Valuable consumer data that builds over years. It's trends about so many products, about so many ingredient types, about seasonal data, um, even what kind of credit card you use to buy it with, what the size of your shop. I mean, yeah. the, the insight there, the value for the firm is so incredibly deep as far as insight yep. goes that coffee, <laughs> that's nothing <laughs> compared to what they're getting out of it. And I think until people start to see that they are the product in this situation, but, yeah. you know, the, the coffee is, doesn't go anywhere near it. People don't start to take ownership of it. It's, you know, it's in the same way that people are surprised to hear that Facebook is, is flogging their data left and right. It really, I know. this shouldn't surprise you. You've, you've given all this free coffee because <laughs> you, can, you can share your photos, you can make friends, you can join groups, you can do this and that. And TV, people start asking themselves, well, how's that being paid for? Um, you know, where's, mm-hmm. where's the money in all this? And people don't think like that. There's another project we're involved with, which is about air travel rewards, which is, again, sure. so, you know, a very affluent consumer subset, people who fly regularly. And for some reason, it seems really difficult for them to get meaningful rewards and actually be able to use their points for something like a free flight, which they actually want. Um, so this is a project just to aggregate all of that data. But again, to make the user central to it and their experience and not just to bring together the points plans from all all different airlines by means of a a crypto token so they can be intertraded, which is a really exciting idea. But it's the fact that the consumer might have a choice in that and might be able to say, well, actually, yeah, I I earned these miles over there, but I want to use them over here. And this is what I want to gain from it. And also that I might choose to unlock some of my behavior as a consumer to help in research, but that I will get rewarded for that. And I'll earn additional points yeah. for being part of those studies.
1: Yeah, no, it's quite fascinating. The other thing that I find fascinating about, like just to go back to your grocery store example, like if you could control the data that they're using about you to, to actually benefit you. And I think the simplest example is if you get, you have their loyalty card and you run their app, and you have like a food allergy or something yeah. and it can suggest kind of meals for you or new products or products to buy that you know you can eat with your food allergy you would probably more likely openly give some of your data away for the convenience of that you you might right
2: absolutely and that's where your idea of a universal personal blockchain comes in that yeah information could be put together without compromising your personal identity maybe the supermarket could even warn you hey that thing you're about to buy that processed food you know that has ingredient x in it It
1: exactly right and we know about and so I guess like I I like kind of talking about some of the bad stuff, but I also like talking about some of the conveniences that, you know, all this stuff could provide for us Mm -hmm. because I think in, in a lot of cases, it, it doesn't always have to be used for kind of evil, I guess, is the, maybe the a bad way of putting it. But you know what I'm getting at. Yeah,
2: and it's, it's not, I mean, you know, it's sort a of deep philosophical point. Profit, I don't believe, is evil. I think lack of transparency about it. Yeah, that's fair. It's quite deceptive and disingenuous. I think prosperity is something that we all need to aspire to. Prosperity is what keeps the world peaceful and making progress and lets us all sleep at night. Um, in in worlds that aren't at war or wondering where the next meal's coming from. So let's not not profit, but let's try and kind of encourage an openness about it and uh, an education so that people realize what they're getting into when they whiz through a a privacy update and just click I agree at the end because they're not going to read 47 pages of dense small explaining what was going to happen to their data. That doesn't work. And, you know, for all the new laws in Europe about privacy that's supposed to make privacy by design more central. I think all it's done is make people write longer and longer policy documents that no one's ever gonna read.
1: Interesting. I was actually gonna ask you about that. I'm I'm glad that you kind of brought that up because I was gonna obviously like most of my listeners are in kind of North America and and a bit beyond and obviously I don't live in um, that part of the world. So yeah, you don't think it's really changed much because I know over here at least like a lot of companies were kind of scrambling to get something up for that. (laughs) But it hasn't really changed anything on your end. At least you haven't seen anything major other than more policies uh, so far anyway. I
2: think there was an awful flurry in the last couple of weeks before the act went into place by people who weren't quite sure where their mailing lists had come from and if they've been properly opted in. So there was this mad cascade of emails saying, please just check this box so that we can prove we've got permission to email you. Um, and often those weren't necessary at all, or if they were necessary, then they didn't have permission to send you the email to ask if it was necessary. And There was a lot of interesting highlighted there, I think, as to how you were ever opted in in the first place. But An awful lot of people seem to have stopped there, and there's so much more to Privacy by Design. And I think what a lot of people sometimes forget is these big high-profile breaches, the likes of Equifax and so on. They're yeah. not generally as a result of somebody doing something deliberately malicious from within the organisation. Someone saying, I'm yeah. sell all these records." Their external penetration, and the huge yeah. fines come about because people's information security isn't up to scratch, or the staff training, people aren't aware uh, uh, to notice when somebody's probing them for information or little bits of information they'll aggregate in order to perform an attack. So it's really it's it's not about kind of deliberate people saying, I'm going to steal this information and sell it. It's about people falling victim to things that the regulators rightly believe they should be able to prevent by better awareness. And it's that lack of awareness that worries me. I don't think it's meant change. And it isn't a European thing because there's so few record sets now that you can say are all about one part of the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, interesting.
2: You know, I think every mailing list is almost impossible to say, If you have a a mailing list of five figures or up, I think it would be very hard to say to a regulator, I can prove there's not a single European citizen in there, so this doesn't apply to me. And I think this is one reason why we're going to have to see more convergence of regulation, whether it's about data or about cryptocurrency and, you know, ICO funding and things like that is so fragmented at the moment that people think, well, I'll do it from this jurisdiction. We'll set up a company over there. Or um, uh, well, we'll say that this token sale isn't open to US residents, for example. But then, actually, you know, it's pretty easy for people to get around those things. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe as simply as using a VPN. And then, whose problem is it if it does turn out that that's um, an illegal security sale in the end, you know, made to a US citizen, for example? So, I think there's a place to come.
1: Yeah, it's quite fascinating and I was actually watching um, an interview the other day with uh, a big kind of security name and he was basically saying, um, if you're looking to be like an ethical hacker and, and kind of actually help companies kind of fight some of these, you know, making sure that systems and stuff are as secure as possible, that basically the job market Like if you understand it even a little bit, you can get a job. Like the unemployment rate in the security market for for basically the foreseeable future will be 0%. Like you will have a job, which is is really kind of interesting to me. Like I always knew that, you know, there's such a shortage of people. But like when he put it as simple as like, look, like for decades, probably the rest of our lifetime, you will always be with a job because it's only getting worse. Like it's not getting better. As more and more things move online, more and more things become open, more and more things, you know, just are going to be hacked. Right. And And if you can work good or bad, right. You'll, you'll be without, you'll always have a job and hopefully, you know, maybe people, um, don't go the bad route. Well, but.
0: yes, I
2: was going to say, it's not just ethical hackers, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, there are two career paths there. Um, and there's probably more crossover between them than we realize. I'm sure there's a lot of cases of, you know, people making deals when they're finally caught and actually... Sure,
1: but, um. but the interesting thing about it was his point was also like, sure, obviously, like, you can pick the, you know, kind of bad black hat, kind of um, bad side of hacking. But his point was like, yeah, you can go that route, but you can make just as much money, if not more money being kind of on the good side as well. Yes. And I didn't really kind of, I don't know, I, I guess it's kind of historically been a little bit the other way around. And I think it's kind of changing now. So I'm I'm not telling people to like pick, pick a side, but like, I think if you're going to look into it as a career, you can make a really good living kind of being an ethical hacker. now. Yeah, that's The security side of thing is, is only growing and you will basically have a job for the rest of your life. I don't quote me on that, but you know, it's that low of, uh, you know, unemployment.
0: Thanks for listening to building the future. This show is heard by more than a million people monthly in over 15 markets worldwide, including Silicon Valley. Kevin Horick's guests are leading business owners, successful entrepreneurs and merchandisers worldwide. Now, your brand has an opportunity to tap into this dedicated and active group of business people who are looking for places to invest and the right opportunities to support. Find out how you can get involved at buildingthefutureshow.com.
2: We're not going to fix this as a problem. Um, No. You know, it doesn't matter... It's, it's an arms race, basically, because there will always be the bad side taking the risks and the rewards sure. that go along with that. So the people who want to protect stuff are going to have to keep the same level of investment and rewards for their key people um, to yep. match that in order to attract people back. And you know other perks of the job, like not likely to go to jail and things like that, um, are obviously attractive to people, too. But they're going to have to make sure that they're attracting that talent and... Whilst the actual roles will move, I mean, I think the whole future of work thing is really fascinating and how jobs are going to change and everybody's panicking about robots um, going to take their jobs and so on. But there are some areas that are going to grow so much whether that's yeah. we have a shortage of blockchain engineers, we have a shortage of information security people. Uh, we're going to have shortages of people who can actually mend plumbing and things like that because sure. you know people who can actually fix things with their hands and uh, you know as 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 a parent of teenagers now, I see them still being prepared by the school systems for jobs that barely exist now. They certainly won't in five or ten years' time, and um, really we sh- they should be being taught how to hack. They should be being taught how to protect yeah. themselves. They should be being taught how to code, which is still a niche yep. thing. Um, they should be a, being taught how to use maths properly, useful maths, like probability and budgeting, and instead of how to yeah. resolve triangle dimensions. And,
1: I was just uh, gonna say, like, I don't really, I've never, I, since I've been out of high school, I think I've never tried, had to find the circumference of, uh, you
2: know. <laughs> no, I haven't used that one for a while yet. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, whereas you know you get people coming out with their maths degrees who and then you they 'll still see them buying a lottery ticket because they don 't understand yeah. the basic law of odds um, and why you might as well just stuff your money straight down the toilet and flush it um, but they 're allowed to invest in that, but they 're not allowed to invest in cryptocurrency projects
1: <laughs> yeah, which is interesting, right, yeah, interesting. I never compared the two, but you 're right they're they 're kind of. It's kind of the same thing, right? Like at a basic level.
2: Yeah. I mean, I th- I think there's the, definitely there's got to be a change in in how we we learn and share information and how people go on learning. I mean, the interesting thing for me now is how easy it is to learn new stuff. You know, having ended up sure. switching careers when I did and going into a completely new area. One thing I love about it is that it's new and that everybody's new, you know, nobody's
1: yeah, yeah. you can't be an expert at something that's been out for like a couple no, of years. No,
2: it's brilliant. And so there is <laughs> a really nice kind of lack of ego about it. Of course, there are gurus and egos and you know, sure, there are a few of those. But for the most part, people are just really keen to share, keen to help each other, keen to share their fascination with whatever they're working on in a very sure. enabling and helpful way. And that's wonderful. And I think the fast movingness of it, the way it's all getting fragmented into so many different possibilities and the way that people get behind their projects and get really excited about them is great. And so yeah, nobody can say, I've been a blockchain guru for 30 years. Because <laughs> we you know they're lying. <laughs> Mind you, somebody told me the other day crypto years are like dog years. So oh right, okay. We all you. do have lengthy generation spanning careers already, some of us. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Sure. Um, So, no, speaking of kind of sharing, you're about to launch kind of a podcast. Mm. What exactly are you going to talk about in the podcast? And have you picked a name for it
2: yet? We have. I mean, it's probably going to be launching within the next few weeks, but it's very different to the client work we're doing. Because we're working with these amazing projects who are changing the world and sure. so on, we know that the one thing that will serve all of those clients best is to bring more people into the crypto ecosystem. And it's something sure. that I feel very strongly about personally, that people need to know about this stuff, not at the high level, geeky um, sure. level, or even the will you fund us level, but just how do I buy stuff with crypto? How do I own a little bit? of this currency where there's only going to be 21 million of them ever and they're all going to get sold. Um, So what we're going to launch is, we'll see how it goes, but we want to start telling stories at a much more fundamental level and explaining to people what blockchain is, um, Mm -hmm. how to keep themselves safe. You know, I spent so long in consumer research. I'm very, very aware that it's difficult at the moment and that if you make a mistake, you can lose a lot of money. So I want to come at this more from a consumer finance advice point of view. Uh, obviously won't be giving financial advice, be very clear about that. <laughs> There'll be sure. few disclaimers um, at the end of every session. But I want people to feel a little bit empowered to understand this stuff, to realize that to use it, you don't have to be a blockchain engineer sure. in the same way that you don't have to be a computer engineer to use Facebook, you know. Yeah. There are lots of people working on tools to make things far more accessible to users. And,
1: and it's getting only, better almost weekly, right? It is
2: getting better, yes. And there's lots of debate in the sphere as yeah. comparing crypto to the early internet. And people say, you know, are we in 1988 or are we actually sort of in 2001 or whatever? And, but things are changing very rapidly. And so what sure. I want to do is just create a podcast for people. It's called Crypto Confidence. And it's going to deal with some very, very basic concepts and it'll be interesting to see how it goes because it's something that people shouldn't listen to for years. You know, hopefully people will quickly outgrow us and move on if they're interested in this sphere to one of the many excellent in-depth podcasts in the area where they go into the technology in far more detail.
1: Very cool. I, I think a simple example, and it's probably loosely related, like, But I think the best example that I've kind of given people before is like if you use the Starbucks app that you load with your credit card or your bank account and you just like scan your phone, you're basically using like a cryptocurrency. It's like Starbucks's currency, right? And like I know it's like a very simplified version of it and probably like somebody that actually really understands Bitcoin would say like, no, 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 you're completely wrong. But like if you think about like you load, you take... A currency of yours and you you give it to a company and then that currency is kind of converted to their currency and then you use it to buy things sure you can only use your starbucks card at starbucks but you know and i was reading an article they were saying like starbucks is basically the biggest cryptocurrency right now or like digital currency because mm-hmm. it's kind of used in so many countries or another example is even like itunes like you give apple you're, you have this iTunes credit, right? Yeah. Now it's like an Apple currency, right? And you can use your, your iPhone to pay. <clears throat> and like, you know, it, it's like a very, very simple kind of examples of I think what people can kind of at least start to understand, right? It's not really a cryptocurrency, but like it's the closest thing that I think the, the non-technical person can understand. Okay, I, I can start yeah. to see what you're kind of getting at. And out. I think Do
2: it, it helps that? people conceptualize the idea of digital money because some
1: yeah one of
2: the things people say about cryptocurrency is well it has no physical form it's not tangible you know I I can't see a dollar bill or a or a 20 euro note or something. And so well actually how much of your money do you actually have in stacks of bills at the moment? Yeah most of your assets are probably completely digital anyway. Um, whether they're in the forms of traditional currency or whether they're converted into store card loyalty points or something you can only use to get coffee. Um, or I suppose in terms of things like iTunes and, and store loyalty, you could say they're like stable coins because they have a definite peg against the fiat currency
1: yeah, interesting. of their
2: nation. They're not freely traded. But apart from that, they are basically purely digital currencies. But then much of the currency that we have is your bank yeah. have a big stack of notes corresponding to the amount you deposited, you know, and if you borrow, they create that money out of nowhere via fractional reserve banking. And most of the money doesn't exist anyway. Um, That's a bit scary, but that's the concept we want to talk about in crypto. Just to explain, maybe you should trust crypto more because real money is such a a fabrication anyway. (laughs) And we're not trying to make everybody run home and put tinfoil over their heads and, (laughs) Hide under the bed, but just to make people a little bit more aware of the things that we can take for granted if we've never lived in an economy that's collapsed. um, Yeah, it's interesting. Where there are people who've literally lost access to their savings and their banking overnight, and there are certainly other parts of the world where this is happening now. Um, and if we've never faced that we've never really thought how fragile the whole thing is and that there are alternatives whether that's investing in resources like gold or oil or whether it's maybe having some of your assets in a new kind of currency that people aren't familiar with yet we want to just demystify things a bit give people a chance to think about it question it find out more find the right questions to ask the right resources to follow we're not going to be financial advisors um and I'm never going to be a blockchain engineer. You know, I'm never going to try to explain it on that level. I read really sure. a lot about this stuff. I did, um, there's a brilliant course by the University of Nicosia that they were free as a MOOC, a massive online certificate thingy. Um, okay. And great. And it's free. And they're about to start again in September. And I did that earlier this year, which brought a lot of my technical knowledge up to scratch a little bit. It certainly took me out of my comfort zone. But it's on that kind of level of just, they found some very good metaphors of explaining things. And sometimes I think Bitcoin and blockchain was invented by geeks for geeks. So yeah, like sure. terminology, it's, it's just not very helpful. Even things like mining as a concept, we need better words mm-hmm. for it. You know, your digital wallet isn't actually a wallet at all. It's more like a keychain. And I think if we can just yeah. explain things a bit better, maybe that's where LockSparks as storytellers can come in and, do a job on kind of helping bridge that gap for normal everyday people. Again, as we were saying earlier, not to talk down to people or assume that they don't have the capacity to understand this, but just to find accessible analogs and metaphors, make it real for people in terms of their everyday lives and make them think, well, actually I could choose to invest in a little bit of this or dabble a little bit, or I might just want to discover more about it first, but now I know where to go and what to look for. So that's what we're hoping to do with crypto confidence.
1: No, I think that's great because I think part of the problem with some of this stuff is most people don't really understand it, but most people are also scared to say they don't really understand it, and especially like kind of socially, right? Yeah. At least I've kind of found and it's like, well, no, it's there's nothing wrong with you not really understanding because I think most people don't understand and most people have the same questions as you. So, if they have a podcast like yours where they could just go learn some stuff about this without other people knowing that they didn't know it before yeah. they listened to your podcast you know what I mean
2: absolutely and we you know the intention is to create uh, even if it's going to be a regular fortnightly show to have it it's pretty evergreen stuff that people will be able to sure we'll create some detailed show notes that are in depth so people can if they really want to know about something that we spoke about months ago hopefully it will still be relevant and accessible and we'll answer those questions. And I hope we'll have questions coming in from our audience as well. The kind of questions sure. that we, we're already dealing with individually, socially, and or online. It'd um, be nice to bring those together and try and explain for a, a wider audience.
1: No, I think that's great. But uh, we're coming to the end of the show. So maybe let's close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and uh, check out the podcast when it's ready.
2: Sure. Yes, we have secured um, CryptoConfPod. As a Twitter handle, um, which isn't very kind of elegantly tripping off the tongue, but we've got that. Um, and obviously we're at BlockSparks for the, the main Block Sparks accounts. We are blocksparks.io is our home online. Again, there's, there's not a huge amount of content there, but you can find out the kind of work we're doing for clients and our own blog, the things that we're interested in and writing about there. Um, I'm always glad to connect with people on LinkedIn, If anybody wants to come and talk about any of this crypto stuff or you've got a project idea, um, I'm always glad to connect people to other people in the space as well and try and work out who might be good to talk to somebody else as we get to to know this space and the players in it. So please get in touch.
1: Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks.
1: Bye.
0: Thanks for listening